Welcome to Skim This. Summer is in full swing, but in 2022, apparently summer means dangerous heat and shark sightings. But it also means a cheaper trip to Europe because the dollar is looking strong. We'll break down why USD is giving off BDE and how you can take advantage of a strong dollar. Also on the show, we're taking a deep dive into the confusing world of microchip production and why lawmakers are freaking out that these tiny chips could pose a major national security threat. And to wrap things up, we're talking with an expert about why this summer has felt like real-life Shark Week to some Americans and how we can stay safe at the beach. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. To start the show, we've got some breaking news. President Joe Biden has tested positive for COVID-19. According to the White House, the president is fully vaccinated and twice boosted and is currently experiencing very mild symptoms. He's also taking Paxlovid, an antiviral drug that's meant to reduce virus symptoms and severity. At age 79, Biden is the oldest living president, and he's considered by the CDC to be in an age group that's vulnerable to get more sick from the virus. This is the first known time that Biden has had COVID-19, but he's definitely not the first world leader to test positive. And he's not even the first president. Former President Donald Trump had COVID-19 back in October 2020, before vaccines were readily available. And now, as cases soar in the U.S. because of the highly transmissible BA5 mutation, it seems not even the president could avoid catching it. The White House will be providing daily updates on the president's condition. And if anything changes, the skim will keep you updated as well. Now, let's get to some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. For our first headline, we're talking rising temperatures and scorching heat around the world. The heart of England, today hotter than the Caribbean and Western Sahara. In the immortal words of Nellie, it's getting hot in here. This week, the UK issued its first ever red warning for extreme heat. And just hours after that warning came, Britain hit a record high temperature of just over 104 degrees Fahrenheit. As a result, trains have been delayed out of fear that the heat might cause tracks to buckle. And one airport in London paused flights after heat melted the tarmac. Now, millions of citizens are left in a sweltering country that lacks the infrastructure to deal with extreme heat in the first place. Only 5% of Brits have air conditioning. And to put that into perspective, 90% of American households have AC. And this week, Mother Nature didn't stop with the Brits. In Spain and Portugal alone, more than 1,000 people died from heat-related causes. And wildfires have sparked in southwestern France and in Greece, where emergency services are still trying to put them out. As Europeans suffered through heat waves, so did more than 100 million Americans, or one-third of the population. Temperatures are likely going to hit the triple digits this week from the west to the northeast, while wildfires are raging from Alaska to Texas. 
many experts are directly blaming climate change for the extreme weather, saying this will only get worse. And President Biden is in that camp. In a speech yesterday, he said he'll continue to treat climate change as an emergency. As president, I'll use my executive powers to combat the climate crisis in the absence of congressional action. But he disappointed some progressive Democrats when he didn't formally declare a climate emergency. Instead, he announced executive actions to fight the climate crisis, like plans to spur more offshore wind projects and more than $2 billion to help prepare cities for extreme weather. And next week, Skim This is taking a deep dive into heat mitigation and how certain cities across the country are trying to cool off. For our next headline, let's head to D.C. and check in on what lawmakers got up to this week. The House voted 267 to 157 to pass the Respect for Marriage Act. On Tuesday, the House voted to federally protect marriage between same-sex and interracial couples. This bill also repeals a 1996 law that only recognizes marriage as a union between a man and a woman. So why is this coming up now? Well, some lawmakers are growing increasingly worried that the Supreme Court could walk back its ruling that same-sex marriage is constitutional. Justice Clarence Thomas even called for that in his concurrent opinion to the Roe v. Wade decision. So Democrats decided to vote on it. And Tuesday's vote wasn't just along party lines. Some analysts say a surprising number of House Republicans joined in in saying yes. Now, that bill heads to the Senate, where all eyes are on whether 10 GOP senators will sign on. So far, four Republicans have said they will or likely will support the bill. So stay tuned. Oh, and we should note, the House also voted on Thursday to federally protect an individual's right to access contraception. That vote was largely along party lines, and the legislation's fate in the Senate is TBD. So all of that was happening in the House. As for what was going down in the Senate, Yesterday, a group of 16 senators unveiled what could be the first bipartisan legislation aimed at stopping a repeat of January 6th. Part of the bill clarifies that the vice president's job when certifying an election is solely ministerial and that they have no power to adjudicate disputes over electors, aka they can't overturn election results. This proposed legislation is in direct response to former President Trump pressuring then-VP Mike Pence to overturn the 2020 election. And it's come just in time for another January 6th primetime hearing. Tonight, the committee will give us the deets on what former President Donald Trump was up to on January 6th, after he directed his supporters to go to the Capitol. They're also expected to reveal that Trump had the power to stop the mob but chose to do nothing for hours. Plus, two former Trump White House officials are expected to testify, as some experts say the criminal case against Trump is building. This is the last scheduled hearing, but the panel saying, give us something juicy and there could be more. You can tune in to tonight's hearing at 8 p.m. Eastern. Summer has always been the season of how did they afford that six-week trip to Europe? 
But now, there could be a new reason that your Instafeed is filled with Lizzie McGuire-level content. Sing to me, Paolo. This is what dreams are made of. Because the U.S. dollar is the strongest it's been in 20 years. And it turns out a strong U.S. dollar doesn't just buy you a cheap plate of spaghetti. We'll break down what caused big dollar energy, plus what the change in value means for businesses and our wallets, all in 60 seconds. For the first time in years, the euro and U.S. dollar are worth just about the same. That's a term experts call parity. And the two currencies actually hit parity for a brief period last week. The dollar seems to be strong AF right now, just as the world has become more economically unstable. Here in the U.S., to combat some of that instability, the Federal Reserve has hiked interest rates. But instead of that being a red flag, investors see dollar signs and tend to favor dollar-denominated assets, aka investments paid out in USD. In turn, that pushes the dollar's value more. Basically, in times of economic uncertainty, you can think of the dollar like a safe haven compared to other currencies. So who benefits from a strong dollar? One group is US tourists, who basically get a one-to-one -one money exchange when they travel to countries that use euros. So paying for hotels, drinks, and transportation feels the same as paying at home. And by the way, the last time this happened was in 2002. So the Aperol spritzes are on me this round. A strong dollar can also help the Federal Reserve fight inflation because imported goods into the US are now cheaper. So prices for those goods start to go down. Okay, this all sounds like a W for American tourists abroad and for us here at home. Amazing, right? Well, not so fast. A strong dollar can cause trouble for American companies that make big money in other countries. Because earnings in euros or another currency are actually worth less once they're converted back into USD. And for manufacturers, their products become more expensive to buy abroad so people could just stop buying them. We'll also point out a strong dollar also hurts other countries' economies. European nations aren't psyched to see USD as the center of attention because now it costs more to import US goods and considering Europe's already been dealing with an energy crisis, that's not exactly welcome news. Okay, so now that we know all of this, what's gonna happen next? besides us checking flight prices to Paris. In a surprise move on Thursday, the European Central Bank clearly wanted some of that strong USD energy and pushed its interest rates up by 0.5%. While here in the US, rates are expected to go up another 75 points next week. As for how you can take advantage of a strong dollar, one is comparison shop and check out buying more imported goods. And two, it's a good time to check out those travel deals. Who knows, you might end up riding on a Vespa through Rome. Are you sure you know how to drive this thing? This is Rome. Nobody knows how to drive. Oh, we wish that was how vacation was. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com.
There are now more than 2,300 confirmed cases of monkeypox in the United States. And while those numbers are only a small fraction of COVID case counts, public health experts are sounding the alarm about monkeypox spreading, particularly in the LGBTQ community. Here was former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb on CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday. I think at this point we failed to contain this. We're now at the cusp of this becoming an endemic virus where this now becomes something that's persistent that we need to continue to deal with. I think the window for getting control of this and containing it um, probably has closed. Monkeypox isn't new, but this current outbreak is unprecedented and is primarily affecting men who have sex with men. About 13,000 people have been infected globally. Monkeypox spreads through skin-to-skin contact and gives people a painful, blistery rash, fever, and body aches. Though, so far, serious complications are rare. To combat the virus, the U.S. does have vaccines, testing, and certain treatments available. But so far, the rollout of those things has been slow, putting added stress on members of the LGBTQ community and monkeypox patients. Our producer, Will Livingston, was finally able to get a vaccine appointment in New York this week. But as he told us, that process wasn't easy. I skim this. I just finished getting the first dose of my monkeypox vaccine. Overall, the experience to get to this appointment has been pretty intense just because there's not that many appointments. And the only reason that I ended up getting the shot in my arm today was because I knew someone and, you know, last minute by a stroke of luck, there was an opening and I was able to get in with a day's notice. To learn more about the public health response to monkeypox, we called up an expert. Hi, everyone. My name is Keleto Makufani. I'm a social network epidemiologist at the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University. I've seen a few articles around the experience of monkeypox patients trying to access treatments and testing. It seems like it's been really challenging for people or impossible to find. I'm curious just what you've heard about the experience of patients right now. Yeah, I, one of the first few cases which was reported extensively in the media was a friend of mine who went abroad and uh, had fun, you know, in Europe, had sex there. Came back a few weeks later, he experienced uh, fever and swollen nodes. Over the next week, he tried at least four healthcare providers just to get tested. The healthcare providers just wouldn't extend that to him because of complications in how testing was made available. I've heard a few people talk about the experience with painful monkeypox, and more than one person has said it is the most intense pain that they've ever experienced in their lives. And that even with pain control assisted by the healthcare providers, monkeypox can be a really, really awful disease to experience. It can make it really difficult to do normal things like sleeping and going to the bathroom. So the experience varies, but what's really important to understand is that for some people, it's a serious illness. It really interferes with their ability to enjoy their daily lives. Over the weekend, the former FDA commissioner said that the U.S. has failed to contain the spread of monkeypox. From your perspective, kind of what happened and what went wrong? 
we saw the first few cases in Europe from the U.S. I remember like when there was one case in New York City reported, activists had already started anticipating what might happen. So along with Joe Osmondson, who is a scientist at NYU, and Joseph Krellenstein, who is an activist and an expert at Prep for All. So the three of us wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying, look, there is this outbreak. So what we need to do now is invest in setting up our systems for testing to ensure that we have a sense how big it is. And it's safer to overreact in this moment than it is to underreact. We had said from the outset that we have vaccine available that's protective, possibly against monkeypox, but it's sitting in a warehouse in Denmark and we need to get it over here in case we need to use it. And so those warnings, those discussions, they seemed like they were received well by folks in government public health agencies, but they didn't seem to act with urgency in being prepared for the possibility that we're living through. So I think it was possible at some point to really contain this outbreak. I don't want to speculate about how possible it is to contain it now, but I think certainly what we need to do now is ensure that we understand the epidemic and then we can have reasonable discussions about containment. But at the moment, there's such little information and the information is based on a testing system that is behind. It's expanding. We are getting more and more availability of testing, capacity for testing because private labs are being allowed to do monkeypox testing. But I, I'm afraid it's, it's a little bit late. Do you think that because this virus was first reported to be in the gay community and not, say, in preschoolers, that that affected U.S. response or media coverage around taking the virus seriously? I do think that it made a difference. I think it's not super clear to me right now, without further evidence, what that difference was. I know for certain that we have been very careful in thinking about how to describe the spread of monkeypox, how to describe the settings in which gay and bi men might acquire monkeypox, and being careful not to class it as a sexually transmitted or sexually transmitted and gay disease, but rather a disease that in this particular setting has taken hold among gay and bi men. So that, that has been very, very important and we shouldn't take it for granted, especially in this time where queer people, particularly trans people, are really being violated politically. Now, I think really the question you're asking is, is homophobia in the press and in the government causing people to not take this illness seriously? And I think that is a serious question to discuss. I'm not sure that it has, but I'm not sure either that it hasn't. I don't know what the counterfactual is where this illness started among pregnant women or children. I don't know what that would have looked like because some of the problems with this response have to do with just the inability for public health agencies to act quickly on new information. And last question, is there anything else our audience should keep in mind when it comes to monkeypox? I think one thing to keep in mind is that we're all connected. All of us are connected. If monkeypox continues much longer among the gay and bi community, it's going to find itself in other settings, settings which are conducive to spread. 
any transmissible illness that is left unchecked in some population in the society is a threat to the whole society. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. There's been a lot of talk about chips lately. And no, we're not just talking about a bag of Lay's. We're actually talking about silicon microchips, also referred to as semiconductors. This week, the Senate voted to advance a bill that provides around $52 billion in subsidies for microchip manufacturing. So of all the things the Senate could be paying attention to right now, why microchips? We've seen this huge chip shortage in the past year or two. It's stretching into two years. And that's been affected by the pandemic. But really, it's a a reflection of how chips are increasingly vital for everything. Will Knight is a senior writer at Wired. And he told us that although you might have never seen a microchip IRL, you've definitely used one before. From the device you're listening to this podcast on to military defense weapons, These humble little chips power a lot of the technology we rely on daily. Everything that we take for granted, like iPhones and the stuff that run on it, they're running on the the very latest silicon. Cars used to feature a few dozen chips. Now they feature hundreds, if not thousands. And that's just one example of everything becoming much more computerized. You know, we're all familiar with these sort of ridiculous things like internet-connected fridges. But it is true that there's chips everywhere, and they are so fundamentally important. Having the most powerful chips enables you to do the most powerful AI computations or 5G. All these other technologies really are built on cutting-edge silicon. Even though these chips power so much of our day-to-day lives, only 12% of the world's microchips are produced in the U.S., down from 37% in 1990. And it's more rare for chips to be made in America because it's cheaper to make them abroad. In fact, the majority of the world's microchips are actually made in Taiwan, South Korea, and China. Then enter the pandemic, when production dried up at the same time that people wanted more and more stuff. So with low supply and high demand, the chip shortage was born. Which we should note we're still recovering from. It's actually expected to last until 2023. And according to Knight, allowing just a handful of countries to produce one of the world's most used technologies is problematic for a few reasons. That is an issue for the US if it wants to stay competitive because chips are increasingly vital for everything. If we're not making the most advanced chips, we're not going to be at the very cutting edge of technological innovation. And there are also those who really worry about the security applications and the geopolitical applications. National security has also been a hot topic in the chip discussion. Lawmakers fear that if we're dependent on countries in Asia for our chip supply, and we experience another supply chain shock, or worse, a geopolitical threat, we'll be in a sticky situation. As it stands, Taiwan produces more than half of the world's semiconductors. But tensions are increasing between Taiwan and China, which is stoking fears that China could end up blocking U.S. access to all of those chips. Chips have become this kind of 
tool of geopolitical power. So we've seen how the US has targeted, especially China, and really crippled some of its most powerful companies by restricting access to semiconductors. And so there's an obvious concern that, you know, the same thing could happen to the US. And so it wants to bring more chip making back to this country and and also to sort of secure its supply chain to make sure that it knows where things are coming from if they're going to be used in critical places like military applications. Safe to say, that potential threat from China got lawmakers' attention. In 2020, Congress introduced the Bipartisan Chips Act. It was originally part of a broader bill that sought to increase competition with China. But just this week, thanks to some lobbying from chipmakers, a slimmed-down version of the bill passed a key hurdle in the Senate. This legislation would provide tax breaks and more than $50 billion in subsidies for American semiconductor companies. And it primarily benefits one chipmaker, Intel. The total price tag of the bill is estimated at $250 billion. A final Senate vote is expected within days. Then it'll go to the House. And if all goes well, it'll advance to the president's desk. Which would make chipmakers, who've been dragging their feet for the past two years waiting for government money, very happy campers. Because they need more money to stay competitive with other countries. Well, we don't have the capacity to make those very, very cutting edge, the most advanced chips right now. So we do need to have companies step up and they're working hard to try and get better. The most obvious one is Intel because it makes the most advanced US chips, but they need to step up and get a lot of investment to build capacity. Even though ramping up production here in the US sounds like a good thing, there has been some criticism of the CHIPS Act from different players. For example, chipmakers who aren't Intel are saying, this is only going to be good for them. What about us? As for other criticisms... It's giving a lot of money to these companies that might have invested anyway. So it's, you know, big government handouts. The US historically for a while hasn't done this kind of industrial policy around technologies where it's pouring government money into things which you would expect the free market to do. But it's clear to politicians and chipmakers that if the US wants to remain competitive, the country has got to make like your ex and give companies a reason to stay. Companies in other countries like TSMC and Samsung, they have received a lot of government support and China is pouring tons of money into chip making. The EU's announced huge subsidies. So to compete, it's becoming increasingly necessary to have some sort of government backing. Some believe that even with this government funding, this deal isn't going to be sexy enough in the long term. Because when you divvy up $50 billion between a bunch of corporations, it doesn't seem like enough money to bring production back home, especially when other countries have already got manufacturing on lock. So what's the other incentive here for companies and lawmakers to push for domestic production in the US? Well, it all comes down to innovation. Politicians are betting that by bringing the manufacture of this crucial tech ingredient back to the U.S., it'll spur more technological innovation here at home. It is by far the most extreme, scientifically cutting-edge example of manufacturing. That's the argument, right? That you bring it back and it's going to really help not just create jobs, but help the tech industry innovate more effectively. And being known as an innovator is a rep the U.S. would like to protect. Think of the Ford production line, or just look at all of the tech companies in Silicon Valley. But these days, the Apples and the Microsofts of the world 
rely on cheap overseas labor to actually build their tech, from the chips up. The idea behind domestic production is that if you make the chips here, more high-tech innovation will follow. But does it really matter if chips are manufactured in the same place where ideas are born? Knight argues, when it comes to these tiny chips that are expensive to make and that require perfect and tedious conditions to produce, bringing the manufacturing under the hood of innovation would be beneficial and could spur a new era of American innovation. It is a great example of a kind of manufacturing that if you have closer to innovation, it can be these really good feedback loops that you see more innovation around the software that runs on chips or more innovation in chip design. And one of the things actually to, to bear in mind is that we're kind of reaching some of the fundamental limits of chip making. So bringing manufacturing back to the US will actually be quite important in thinking of what, what comes next. And so that's going to be really key in terms of being able to make the most advanced chips and sell them wherever that might be. Shark Week kicks off this weekend, but this summer has already been real-life Shark Week for some Americans. This month, officials have closed beaches in New York and Massachusetts and have started a shark patrol down in Florida after a string of attacks and sightings. And the sharks seem to be loving the New York summer in particular. Over the past two months, there have been five reports of non-fatal shark bites on Long Island alone, which is an area that apparently used to average about one shark attack every 10 years. So, uh, what the f is going on here? You're gonna need a bigger boat. I think a lot of people's perspectives of sharks have unfortunately been taken from media, right? From a lot of sensationalized movies or TV shows or posts online. And that causes an inherent fear in people without having had any interaction with the shark at all. That's Candace Fields, a PhD student at Florida International University in the Predatory Ecology and Conservation Lab. She told us that the public perception around sharks has largely been shaped by movies like Jaws, and less by movies like Finding Nemo. Fish are friends, not food. Okay, but it seems like people are becoming the food here. So what's going on? It turns out we can attribute the rise in shark sightings to a few factors. I think a part of it is just the fact that there are more people in the water. At the end of the day, if you're in the ocean, it's possible that there's a shark near you. It's more so a matter of technology that is, enables people to see these animals. People have drones and all these things that in the past wouldn't have been possible. So even though there could have been a shark around people, this would have had, you know, been, been none the wiser. Another reason we could be seeing more sharks is climate change and the warming of the ocean. Sharks are inhabiting areas that they might not have in the past. You know, they might be moving slightly later in the year or earlier in the year, depending on what they need to do in terms of their temperature preferences or their prey accessibility. I don't think it's necessarily that shark populations are booming because most of the data says otherwise for most species. It's just a combination of more people in the water and sharks' movements shifting a bit due to climate change. 
We'll also note, some experts say more shark sightings aren't such a bad thing. And it's actually a signal that conservation efforts are working, after shark populations took a big nosedive in the 1970s. And more broadly speaking, Seeing a shark is actually a good thing. Sharks are related to healthy oceans, and healthy oceans are imperative for a healthy planet. Still, if you're like me and this is not making you feel any better, and you can't get that Jaws music out of your head, remember, apparently getting attacked by a shark is more rare than getting struck by lightning. And there are also way more statistically dangerous parts of your beach road trip than a potential shark bite. Like the actual road trip part. So according to Fields, it should still be pretty easy to enjoy the waves. Just be sure to look around you. Education is the key, right? Knowing what's going on and understanding what's going on is essential to being able to make informed decisions of how you're gonna go about your beach day. One easy thing to do is to just make sure you're not going out there alone. It's always good to have somebody else to rely on and in the off chance that you do encounter a shark, to have somebody there to help you. At the end of the day, you're more likely to get hit on the head by a falling coconut than having a negative interaction with a shark. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway. And the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from the Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.